0: Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leila.
1: Good morning. Good morning, everyone.
0: Uh, I am very confused because my uh, <laughs> my headphones appear to be off, so I can't hear anything. Um, But uh, it is, what is it, uh, the 3rd of November today. Yes.
2: How time flies. How Uh,
0: time flies when you're having an absolute year. Um, It is, yeah, I think uh, a lot of us are still, you know, thinking and reflecting on the vigils that happened nationwide yesterday, um, you know, honoring the life of beautiful young Cassius Turvey um, and, you know, thinking about how, It's beyond just naming these racist acts for what they are, but uh, really, you know, committing to making change in our everyday lives and stepping up. Um, You know, I'm not a First Nations person, but um, as a settler on stolen land, it's important to take action every day. We've got to go beyond just naming things and uh, towards transforming, you know, the sort of society where these kinds of sick acts of racial hatred can happen. Um, so maybe we'll jump into uh, a rundown of what we've got on for the show today. Um, I can kick it off. So uh, Jack and Sam from 3CR's Dirt Radio talked to Jupiter McIntyre about her new report, Northern Waters, Uranium in Drinking Water in the Northern Territory, last, uh, last Tuesday, the 25th of October. And the report, which is due to be released later this week, looks at the heightened levels of uranium in the drinking water of remote communities in the Northern Territory, the detrimental health effects and social issues that are driven by careless uranium mining in the Territory.
1: And then we will be speaking to Natalie Felix, who is a writer, feminist, and activist, and has published both fiction and non-fiction work. These days Natalie has a focus on bringing empowerment to queer and disabled people through advocacy and representation. Today, Natalie joins us to talk all things transfiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated, and what inspires her writing practice.
0: One absolute treat to have two uh, members of the LGBTQ community who are Excellent authors um, joining us today, because after that, we're going to be joined by cartoonist, illustrator and art editor, Tommy Parrish, to discuss their breathtaking, oh my gosh, breathtaking, it was so breathtaking, I couldn't even say it, sophomore graphic novel, Men I Trust. Uh, Tommy is based in Montreal, and their previous work, The Lie and How We Told It, was nominated for the Ignatz Awards and won the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for Best LGBTQ Graphic Novel. So super excited to talk about that.
2: And then lastly, well, sorry, my voice left me for a moment. Um, We'll be joined by Lily Ryan, who is a software security consultant and board member of Digital Rights Watch. And she joins us today to speak about the recent cyber attacks and data breaches on Optus and Medibank and what that means for legislation, privacy, and the Department of Home Affairs' proposed strategy to prevent this through biometrics.
0: Excellent. I mean, I think there's a lot that we have on to cover today, but... Um I'm always keen to have a bit of book chat so I'm glad that we got that into um and also extremely worth unpacking uh super concerning stuff around biometrics and data breaches. Um I can't I feel like between the Medibank and the Optus breach uh most people that I know have been hit in one way or another.
2: Yep, myself it, included. It's hard. It's hard to figure out what the right Way is, but I'm sure we'll find out.
0: Yes, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have someone from Digital Rights Watch on sometime in the near future to talk about digital hygiene practices as well, because I still don't know what that means. Yep. Anyway, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM.
3: I'm Sonia Hammer
1: of PX Fano. Join me and our Pacifica family as we talk about all things Pacifica for our Queer Pacifica community, from news and information to covering all the arts and culture and events of our community for our community. PX Whanau, the voice of Queer Pacifica for Australia and the world, every Saturday afternoon 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR, 855 a.m. Community
4: radio.
5: Accent to women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to
4: translate into every aspect of women's
6: lives.
7: Accent to women. What a border. They don't
6: see it like a big wall right along the how Her can conflict. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where, they are too, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such
4: conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Accented Women, a show by and about women from
1: culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds on Community Radio 3CR.
0: And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 a.m.
2: These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of November. First Nations listeners, please be advised that headlines contain mention of a First Nations young person who has died. Marches and vigils have taken place across the country this week in a National Day of Action for Cassius Turvey, who was allegedly killed in a violent, racist attack in Perth in October. Cassius' mother, Michelle Turvey, said she was frustrated by the police's response to that attack that killed Cassius, saying that, uh, that apart from taking a brief statement on the night he was admitted to hospital, they did not take a further statement from him before he died. Ms. Turvey yesterday led a march of thousands through Perth CBD, calling for change in the name of Cassius.
0: Also in the headlines this week, the death of West Papuan human rights campaigner Philip Karma has shocked Papuans and grassroots activist communities in Indonesia and the Pacific. The head of the Papuan Human Rights Commission, Fristramande, confirmed that Mr. Karma was found dead on a beach in Jayapura on Tuesday in what has been deemed a diving accident. However, advocates and friends of Mr. Karma, who was a master diver, are deeply concerned by the manner of his death and are calling for an independent inquiry. Mr. Karma was one of the most prominent and influential campaigners for West Papuan independence and has been a political prisoner on two occasions for raising the West Papuan Morning Star flag, which is banned by Indonesian authorities. Mr. Karma has been described as a father figure for West Papuans and a leader who stood for, quote, justice, democracy, peace and nonviolent resistance, end quote.
1: In other news... The State Inquiry into Systemic Racism in the Queensland Police Service has this week heard that the Deputy Police Commissioner, Steve Golshuski, has used racialised language towards Queensland's First Nations leaders. The inquiry heard that the relationship between Queensland Police and its First Nations advisory body has substantially broken down amid ongoing claims of serious and systemic racism amongst police officers. Members of the advisory group said that Golshuski, the second most senior police officer in Queensland, became aggressive and agitated during a meeting earlier this year when a senior elder in the room pushed for an accountability audit that would independently scrutinise police interactions with First Nations people. And finally in headlines...
2: And listeners, please be advised, this headline contains mention of distressing elements and hate crimes. A long-awaited inquiry into hate crimes against LGBTIQ plus people has begun in New South Wales this week. This inquiry aims to investigate unsolved murders of gay and transgender people to examine whether they were motivated by gay hate bias. An estimated 88 LGBTIQ plus people were killed in New South Wales between 1976 and 2000, peaking during the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. One of the key findings from the parliamentary report that led to the creation of the Special Commission noted that New South Wales Police failed in its responsibilities to properly investigate gay and transgender hate crimes. Investigators have looked through more than 100,000 files spanning 40 years and the Special Commission is due to deliver its report in June 2023. And these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 3rd of November, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM.
6: Nam, Melbourne, Slut Walk is once again taking to the streets in the fight against victim-blaming and slut-shaming. In the past year, we have seen how deeply still rape culture is ingrained in our highest institutions, from the media to federal government. This cannot be tolerated. To take a stand, join the 2022 Slut Walk at 1 p.m. on the 19th of November outside the Victorian State Library. Slut Walk is a 3CR supporter.
3: Hi, my name is Bunjalini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dardy Munwarrow, 546 to 550 High Street Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach, and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 10th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpes, Gathering Place, Dadi Munmaru, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash Beyond the Bars.
2: And now we'll be hearing from Jack and Sam from 3CR's Dirt Radio, talking to Jupiter McIntyre about her new report, Northern Waters, Uranium in Drinking Water in the Northern Territory. The report, due to be released later this week, looks at the heightened levels of uranium in drinking water of remote communities in NT and the detrimental health effects and social issues that are driven by careless uranium mining in the territory.
8: I suppose we'll kick off with... um how widespread is this uranium contamination in NT water supplies?
5: Yeah, so it's across quite a few communities in the Central Northern Territory. Very small communities and about 70 of them have been identified with different sorts of contaminants um, and a lot of those being uranium.
8: Yeah, I'm no expert but I'd say that uranium's probably not a good thing to have in your water.
5: No, definitely not, and it's a very interesting issue because we can't see for certain the effects it has, but it has been linked to different types of cancers as well as chronic kidney disease.
9: So, Jupiter, how, how does the uranium get into the water? What did, what did you discover in this process?
5: Yeah, well, it's actually mostly getting in there through natural methods, so just by leaching into the groundwater over the years in the bores, However, because there's a lot of uranium mining in the Northern Territory, the risk is increased with the mines and uranium from them leaching into groundwater and sometimes being like leaked into it from the mines themselves into local creeks and waterways.
8: Yeah, I mean, and I suppose up there it would be, it, it seems like an issue that maybe is silent, a silent issue, it's the first I've heard of it, speaking to Anthony, Um, and I guess in in an extension to that, what communities are being affected, why they're being affected, and why don't we hear about it, generally speaking, down here?
5: Yeah, so a lot of the issue comes from that it is small, remote Indigenous communities of populations of less than a couple of hundred. They don't have much political power and social power to get the news out there, the top five we identified and that um, I discussed in the report are Laramba, Willora, Willora, Kings Canyon, and Alcoa Tree. Um, Laramba's a bit lucky. It got a lot of media attention from the ABC and the Guardian a few years ago, and that pressure has led to the Northern Territory Government starting up a water treatment plant to treat the uranium that will be open later this year. But a lot of the other communities have just been left in the wayside, I guess, because they don't get that media attention and no one hears about them.
9: Mm. So what sort of contamination levels are we talking about? You're saying that some of it is um, natural, if you can call it that, leaching (laughs) from man-made bores. Um, But also you're saying the uranium mining is, or, or mining in general, is... Are resulting in uranium leaching. Can you give us an idea from what you uh, researched in your report, Jupiter? What What are the levels? How does that compare to normal levels? What Yeah, what sort of danger level are we talking?
5: Yeah, so um, the guideline level is set at 0.02 megalitres. And we've got communities, especially Laramba, um, consistently exceeding over two times that um, every year and this is over a long period of time. Loramba back as early as 2004 but we really don't know the full scope of the issue because they don't test for uranium every year in all of these communities so there are years where we just don't have any data and we don't know what's going on.
9: And is the reason reason that there's missing data because there's not sort of uniformed um, contaminants to be testing for across the region? or I mean, I, I assume it's similar down here that they test for, you know, things that were around in the 1960s and probably not for things that have been developed over the last 10 years. But, yeah, is there a reason for that gap in data and inconsistency in testing?
5: Yeah, well, there's no mandatory level to test for and, not compulsory for them to test so if they don't want to they don't have to and even the guidelines that set that minimum level they're not enforceable so when these communities are going over that there's really no legal reason to like address it
8: yeah okay and with the um with i suppose the companies that are contributing to the uranium in this water level it's is just gross negligence? Is there a way that there's? Is there any preventative measure? Or is it just a byproduct of what they're doing? They can't. There's no possible way that they could prevent it.
5: Yeah. So kind of a little bit of all three. There is some sort of um, negligence there in terms of not doing proper environmental maintenance, and there is the byproduct again. Like there is going to be a byproduct from this mining, but really they shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Yeah. Um, these are mines that are operating with very little social license and kind of no consent from the traditional owners on these lands.
9: What what sort of mining is? Is it mainly uranium mining, or are we talking about other processes that are disturbing your natural, you know, occurring uranium in the area?
5: Yes, yeah, so it's mainly the uranium mining, um, because when they're disturbing the uranium formations that is leaching into the groundwater through the mill trails and through, like, the water byproducts. If they're not careful with where they're going, like I said, they end up in water streams and creeks and can soak into the groundwater.
9: Mm. And the regulation around um, contaminants in the water, is it as loose on other contaminants, uh, Jupiter, or did you just look specifically for data around uranium? Yeah, so I
5: just look specifically at uranium. However, because it's not a legally binding guideline, um, anything can slip through the cracks, really.
8: Mm. Is this, um, the legislation, is that run by um, NT? Is that the territory, or is is it government that enforces this for uranium?
5: Um, Yeah, so the Northern Territory appoints the Water Company, which is power and water in the Northern Territory, and they're Mm. responsible for it.
8: So
9: kind of it's a semi private company. Oh. Mm, a public okay. private public partnership. Private. Mm. A hybrid. <laughs>
8: mm. They always go down well when it comes yeah, to, to <laughs> looking after people, yeah. Yeah,
9: it seems to be like once once it becomes a hybrid, no one is responsible for anything bad that ever happens. Yeah. So Jupiter, tell us more about your report, uh and and what were the uh possible pathways or potential conclusions that you you reached uh, through the process of this report?
5: Yeah, so um, the report covers the background of what is happening in the Northern Territory as well as how it affects human health and what the water regulation is like and the steps forward. So what we're seeing in Maramba is good with the opening of their treatment plant later this year But really what we need to see is more of these pilot programs across these communities that are being left out. Um, And we need to see this coming from the communities themselves as well as these are mainly Indigenous communities. We need to see Indigenous community groups involved in this decision-making so the right decisions can be made.
8: How how are they selling it being... I I mean, I'm sure that this is where the minds are, but... There's got to be a spiel selling the fact that, you know, it's in coal, it's like, yeah, this is toxic, but we have jobs. Do they do any support for the indigenous communities or do they just poison them?
9: <laughs> Very direct. Yeah,
8: well, just as a, I mean, maybe expand on that because of allegedly, uh, allegedly poisoning poison them, them. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, but did, yeah, to expand on that, do you, you know, is there, do they provide any support? Um, socially or you um, know, health setting?
5: Um, yes and no. Because there is higher levels of chronic kidney disease, either due to the predisp- um, predisposition of Indigenous communities and kidney disease or because of the uranium, there are some health services that travel around to provide support. But as far as social support, they haven't received much. Um, Laramba is kind of the outlier in receiving attention and support because they fought so hard for it in court and lost that they gained the social support.
0: Mm. But these
5: other communities are being really left behind. No one talks about them. Uh, they are not heard about in the media or even in the Northern Territory that much. So they are really being left behind by the government.
9: And I think Jack was getting at uh, the corporations' um I don't want to say greenwashing, uranium washing? Uranium Uranium
8: washing, washing. like neon green, bright yellow, I don't know. (laughs) Yellow cake washing? (laughs)
9: Uh, Are are they presenting themselves as, you know, there's a long tradition of mining companies moving into an area saying that they're providing the locals with facilities and social community um, services. Are the entities that are doing the mining... Uh, actually trying to, yeah, yellow cake wash, let's call it, uh, what they're up to there. Are they saying that they're investing in the communities? Is this perhaps why it's an issue that doesn't get any attention?
4: Um,
5: not really. They kind of, for the most part, ignore the communities. So because not all mm. of the communities are affected by the mines because they're so widespread, the ones that are, the mines just kind of ignore them and go about their own business really. Mm-hmm.
9: Yes, well, that sounds like uh, a a very uh convenient way for a mining company to pretend there isn't a problem by just pretending there isn't, isn't a problem. A problem. Yeah. yeah. Very very um scary and also happening I'm sure with lots of other communities uh around different types of mining uh for example you know, There's been a lot of um, talk lately around rare earths and yeah. impacts, and we can see that in uh, Asia-Pacific countries and gold mining, things like that. Each type of mining seems to have a very poisonous substance and also drilling, fracking, et cetera. Mm. Uh, so what is the intention of your report, Jupiter? Where is, what are you going to do with this information? And if people want to... Uh, Find out more about it. Is this going to go to the Northern Territory government to the water authorities? Uh, Yeah, what what's what was the purpose of the report? I guess
5: Yeah, well, I think one of the main purposes is to get the information out there and raise the awareness within the general community Because as we saw in Maramba that really helped to pressure the government to do something so we're hoping to get it out there and for people to read it and to share it and to get the information out there and to put the pressure on the Northern Territory government to do more than what they're doing.
8: And with, I suppose, as a final um, kind of what what can they do? What can people do to get involved? And what can people do to follow your report and how you well what you do with it from um, the release? When is the release, by the way? Is it, has it been?
5: Um, Soon. It should be this week. Sorry, I don't have an exact date right now.
8: Yeah, that's okay. We can put it in. Yeah, so how can people get involved and uh, follow you on your journey holding these uranium miners to account?
5: Yeah, so again, step one is definitely just to know what's going on so you can um, get that knowledge out there and to find ways that you can support the communities, do a little bit of your own research and reach out if you're feeling very enraged contacting the Northern Territory government and asking them what they're planning to do to kind of put that pressure on more personally.
9: All good. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jupiter, for joining us and thank you also for taking the time to do the research and discover uh, that there is a clear trend of, yeah, not taking care of business either from the government or the mining companies. Uh, this legacy work extends across the entire mining industry and the fossil fuel industry. So it's wonderful to see that someone is taking the time to research the impact on water supplies. Thank you, Jupiter.
5: Yeah, thank you very much for having
9: me. We hope to see you soon and we will let listeners know when the report is up on our website and ready to be downloaded.
0: And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Jack and Sam from 3CR's Dirt Radio talking to Jupiter McIntyre about her new report, Northern Waters, Uranium in Drinking Water in the Northern Territory, last Tuesday, the 25th of October. The report, due to be released later this week, looks at the heightened levels of uranium in the drinking water of remote communities in the Northern Territory, the detrimental health effects and social issues that are driven by careless uranium mining in the territory. Keep your eyes peeled for the report to be published with Friends of the Earth Melbourne and find out how you can get involved spreading the word of this very pressing issue in the Northern Territory by heading to our show notes where we'll have links to all of uh, all of these organizations. So catch Dirt Radio from 9.30 to 10 a.m. on Tuesdays here on 3CR Community Radio. Now we're going to go to a song. Uh, this one has a small language warning, but I think it's a very important track to play at this time. This is Black Child by Birds and Moju. Papa
10: always said keep your mind on your money and mind your business because a white man coming. Hunting for the black man, another brother down. Watch out for the trap, son. No one hears a sound. Sirens all around me, my face to the ground. Bounty on my head, will I make another round? Life is but a luxury in this is lucky country. If you I ain't got money, ain't no one above thee. Trust me, shit, I'm lucky that my mama loved me. She showed me beauty in a world that's ugly. Damn. Oh, child.
4: Things are gonna get easier Oh my, time, fire Try to make it in this world known as a black child Oh my, no, lie No matter what you do, you'll be known as a black child Oh my, time, Try to make it in this world known as a black child Mama
10: always said, don't be scared, be prepared Best to know yourself, cause this world ain't fair Reason why we left there, same thing you see here Always stand tall, never let them see fair Nothing really changed, man, just a different town You're still a black kid when it all go down Ain't nobody telling me it's better than the world So my nana's dead, buddy and it all came up How could I know love that I never got to touch? How could she show love? She was forced to give up her black child
4: Child, Things are gonna get easier. Oh, my time, fire. Try to make it in this world known as a black child. Oh. Oh, my. Ooh, things gonna get easier. No, no, child. Things gonna get brighter. No matter what you do, you'll be known as a black child. Oh, my.
2: And that was Black Child by Birds and Moju, a hugely important song. And yeah, just to keep keep that in our thoughts for the rest of today and ongoing every day. And now for the next interview, it will be with Natalie Felix, who is a writer, feminist, and activist, who has published both fiction and nonfiction work. These days, Natalie has a focus on bringing empowerment to queer and disabled people throughout through advocacy and representation. Today Natalie joins us to talk all things trans fiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated, and what inspires
1: her writing practice. Good morning, Natalie.
7: Good morning, Layla. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, we're so happy to have you this morning. So I thought I would just start by talking a little bit about how I was introduced to your work. So Priya very kindly introduced me to your work through the article that you wrote for Siren Sport last month on the impact of the trans, of the trans women in sport debate. And while we won't be speaking to this directly today, I did want to preface our chat by reiter- reiterating some really important points that you brought to light. Um, What I kind of understood from that article and what I've also been thinking about for a while is that the trans women in sport debate is, at its core, fundamentally dehumanising. It reduces the experiences of trans people, in particular trans women, down to a body and a body that is up for public debate and scrutiny. So... In resistance to this reductive narrative that so often dominates trans representation in media, today, you and I will be focusing on the joys, the fears and the complexities of flourishing trans voices. So yes, I'm very excited to have this chat with you. Me too. (laughs) I thought we could start by learning a little bit more about you, Natalie. Could Mm -hmm. you tell me how your journey as a writer began and what you've been working on lately?
7: So I basically started where a lot of um, writers start, which is just writing dumb shit in high school mm-hmm. when I was associating from my classes. Um, and that kind of just kept on going and going and going. And I became that kid that every parent is afraid that their kid is going to turn into. It's like, I want to be a writer when I grow up mm-hmm. um, instead of, you know, doing anything in STEM or whatever people are supposed to do these days. Um, Yeah, I stuck with it and I ended up doing a lot of writing for video games and I joined a whole bunch of like modding projects and stuff, which were a lot of fun, toxic in hindsight, but a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I ended up managing to get one book published pre-transition for a really small fairy press, which was just about a um, bunch of animals being depressed in the American wilderness (laughs) Amazing. And <laughs> thank you and um, after I came out i um just basically did writing for my partners. I did it as a way of like showing that I loved them, and I made visual novels um just you know for fun and because they made really nice. Um, creative little presents for birthdays and stuff. Um, but when I actually, um, met other trans writers, I realized how good the work is and how, you know, underappreciated it is. And I was like, wow, I should really get back into this. And yeah, because like you can really change people's lives by just, you know, putting fiction out there, putting voices out there, and there's so little of it that actually gets appreciated in the world. And that's such a tragedy because we have to work so hard mm. just to get any kind of, like, inlet into, you know, the debate, even our debate, the debate about our lives. Our voices are just really, you know, considered second best somehow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've um, managed to finish my first, proper novel, which is a young adult um, literary fiction novel about a, um, a young 17, um, sorry, 16-year-old girl called Ingrid who um, basically comes to terms with all the trauma and mental health issues that she's dealing with at mm-hmm. her high school. Um, and that is trying to shine a light, not just on, you know, the experiences of trans women in general, but also the trauma that transphobia in high school and the type of, like, gaslighting and just general dismissiveness can have on you at, Mm. like, an incredibly young age. Like, it's really kind of incredibly fucked up that you have children who on the internet are being constantly told that they're, like, groomers and rapists and stuff, and I really don't think that we talk just – enough about the trauma that those have on just, like, young children. It's true. Um, um. And I'm also working on um, another book, which is also designed to shine a light on the trans women in sports debate. Um, and it's, like, yeah, just trying to demonstrate what I said in my article, which is that the idea that trans women have an unfair advantage in sport is ridiculous because we're disadvantaged in literally every aspect of our lives. Like, you can kind of see that play out. Yeah. There hasn't been a single trans person who's actually won a freaking tournament, even though we've been eligible for decades.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is, I think, a debate about the humanity of trans people and not about the reality of the actual situation of trans people in sport. Yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that background. I think one thing that stood out to me is that it's really important to validate, you know, your coping mechanisms and the things you kind of draw on to get by when you're younger. And that can turn into something really special that other people can share as well. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of sharing, um, when I was writing these uh, questions, I was reflecting on my own experience, kind of being a creative and sharing work. And most forms of creative practice require us to really put ourselves out there. And this can be a pretty vulnerable experience, especially when the work you're sharing sits so close to home. And for many trans and queer creators, uh, this means our practice can be deeply linked to our sense of self. So I wanted to ask you, how do you stay motivated when you're dealing with rejections?
7: Um, bold of you to say that I do. Um, I do my best. There's only so much that someone can do. Um, I think the best thing that I have learned is that it's just community. Like, just the people around me are some of the most amazing people I think, probably exist in the world. That's a bold claim, but, like, from my perspective, that's true. Mm -hmm. And they have demonstrated to me, like, above and beyond how important the work that, not just that I do, but, like, all of us do. Like, all of us who are, like, trying hard to be the activists who are, like, dealing with the constant bullshit and constantly swamping ourselves, you know, with the knowledge that, like it's such a depressing, awful time to be a trans person in the world at the moment. But, you know, like, I feel like a lot of um, activists in general feel the same thing. Like, it's not just us. And, like, the same things always get said. It's just when you, like, the rewards that you get, even if they're few and far between, constantly outweigh all the, you know, constant burdens that are placed on yourself and the pressure and sometimes it really just helps to get creative as well which is something that I learned like not just going through the general mainstream processes of trying to get my work out there but like trying to find other ways of trying to get my work out there and other mediums that I can go through like I've also thought about like writing plays because I know books aren't accessible Mm. to everyone so basically For me, it's just firing as many shots at a target as possible and eventually one of them lands. Mm -hmm. And I know that when one of them does land, it's all going to be worth it.
1: Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And um, while acknowledging that we need to emphasise our experience as trans and queer people, I do have to do a little reminder and a heads up that a bit of a language warning, and we do have to keep it PG in case any of our baby trans and queer people are listening today. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, no, that's okay. It's, you know, this is a necessary thing and I believe it's about context. It's not about the words themselves. Um, But so on the topic of, um, I don't know, language, inspiring language, shall we say, (laughs) um, I wanted to ask next, what does inspire you to write? Um, and this could be anything, you know, it doesn't have to be other writing Uh and something that I'm really curious about because I do do some writing, but I also find it pretty difficult to discipline myself. So I always like to ask people, um, and other creatives, do you have any like daily practices that kind of help you focus your energy, help you focus your emotions and your experience?
7: Well, I have EDS, which means I basically need to do morning exercises anyway. So when I'm doing those, because I tend to, like, they're repetitive and boring, I tend to just think about what types of things I want to do. And, like, I often get, like, you know, do music or Mm. have YouTube or something in the background while I'm doing that. And that kind of, like, background noise really kind of puts me in the zone. And I'm like what would my characters be doing now? Because I really do grow to love my characters. I think about mm. what they're doing when I'm not writing them, if that makes sense. Like, you know, what are their m- routines every day? Um Because my characters, like, are literally just, you know, they're inspired a lot just by the people I meet because the people I meet don't tend to get, like, reflected in you know work that you tend to find in a bookstore very often at all
4: Mm.
7: so being able to like you know just take people I meet just when I'm like going out with friends or whatever and you know thinking about their personalities their lived experiences and all that kind of stuff and putting them into a book or a situation yeah you can get a lot of magic just off of that um I also just have TV shows playing in the background, which doesn't work for everyone, but it does for me. I managed to watch every episode of The Crown that way, which is so much better than it has any right to be. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) That is very impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Multitasking at its finest. I wonder if The Crown kind of made it into any of your writing.
7: (laughs) I don't know. I'd be curious if anyone sees The Influence. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to analyse that when um, your novel comes out.
7: (laughs) Oh, yeah, when it comes out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still waiting for that.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, you mentioned before that you have a completed, yet-to-be-published novel, so heads Mm -hmm. up any publishers out there um, if you want to publish some trans fiction excellence, this Mm -hmm. is the place to do it. And (laughs) you're currently embarking on a second novel, Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you to explain a bit more what is trans fiction? This is um, a phrase that I've heard you use to describe not just work by trans people, but kind of as like a uh, framework for writing or a lens to write through. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe you could even go into a bit more about how you develop your fictional characters and their inner worlds. Y-
7: yes. Yeah, so, um, like, when I think of trans people as well, like it's an umbrella term that encompasses so many different varieties of people. And in my opinion, one of the most defining um, characteristics is the fact that we're all outside of the gender binary and like trans fiction, in my opinion comes not just to like a view on the hierarchical roles constructed by the patriarchy, but it's about a general love for humanity at its finest.
4: Mm -hmm.
7: Um, And when I think about my characters, I just think about, you know, what is it about humanity that shines through when you take away all those, like, preconceived ideas of what a man is, what a woman is, anything like that. And you can get a lot of really interesting stuff from that, like... You can find empowerment in just things that a lot of society, I think, takes for granted, just like fashion and, like, I don't know, like, (laughs) does this make sense?
1: Yeah, this makes sense, yeah. I think um, that all these little things really play big roles in building um, who we are and how we face the world, and it makes a lot of sense that those are the things that you think about when you're developing a character. Yeah, um, um,
7: th- sorry, one of the things I was um, thinking about as well is that um, because of trans misogyny, um, as a trans woman, we constantly get attacked just for being successful as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that like, I feel like a lot of trans people, even if they don't realise it, it really, you know, screws around with their own psyche as well. Mm-hmm. And you can get a lot of mileage just from trans um, trans femme self love because yeah. it's such a powerful thing to just take a step back and realise wow I've actually done so much good in my life and no one even notices or appreciates it but I can do that for myself mm-hmm.
4: yeah.
7: <clears throat> um, yeah everything's turned up to 11 when you're a trans woman like class dynamics um, you know just romance and love as well like, there's so much passion and emotion in trans fiction. Um, one of my focuses is just on just gentle slice-of-life stories, mm-hmm. because, again, like, there's so much, like, passion and variety in trans stories, but you just don't find them, and that's really, really sad. I feel like there would be a lot more um, safety in a lot of um, trans women's, like, insecurities and things like that if... There was just an idea that wow, I'm not alone. I have my representation. Like, you know, everyone knows how important representation is. So yeah, it really needs to get out there.
1: It is really, really important. And yeah, I guess just thinking about how your experience can be so amplified when you're a long, young person living in in like within intersections of queer and trans, um, etc. Uh, So it's really important that stories like yours and voices like yours actually reach their audiences and reach out to those people that might be feeling isolated or, you know, just want to see some of their experience reflected in mainstream media or media in general. So speaking yeah. about barriers, I wanted to ask, what are some major barriers? What do you consider the major barriers facing trans fiction writing at the moment? And why is it just so absolutely crucial that trans voices are being published and actually reaching those audiences?
7: Well, I think I touched on that before, mm-hmm. just like, you know, um, there is so much like unnecessary insecurity and fear of taking up space that comes mm. like whenever I meet like young trans women in particular. And it really, really sad. And I feel like representation is one of the major things that could help with that. Not just out of boosting the self esteem and feeling seen from the trans women's perspective, but also cis people need to know that a lot of their preconceived ideas of what a trans person life trans person's life is is so off kilter. Um, and a lot of cis people, like even cis people in like publishing that I've met, like are really reluctant to accept that. And it's really kind of unusual. Like you would think that they would think that I would know, but somehow the idea of their image of what a trans woman is being threatened is worse to them than actually learning Mm. (laughs) from, from me. Um, like, you know, I touched on trans misogyny before as well, um, And just the fear of trans women having success like that, in my opinion, is the foundation of where the trans women in sports debate comes from, because it shouldn't be something that people should be afraid of. And yet it really is. And I wish that, you know, broader cisgender society could stop being so afraid of just trans women having an opportunity for success, because we do have so much to offer the world. Yeah. Um, like um, another trans writer, Madison Stoff, wrote a really powerful essay about how cis people can benefit so much from fighting transphobia as well, not just like an allyship thing, but also broader in general, like to themselves, because the gender binary asphyxiates everyone. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and although um, we all have our own unique experiences, these are really systemic forms mm. of, um, abuse and oppression that affect us all, um, yeah. no matter what your gender is. So it's really important that we remember that we're in this fight together. Yeah. Um, and next up, I wanted to ask, what is a story that you have really enjoyed telling or writing Or a piece of writing that holds significant meaning for you?
7: Um, I think that the story that I'm writing at the moment, which is about, yeah, just a a trans woman who has an aspiration to be a professional tennis player um, who quickly finds out that because she's, like, an incredibly wealthy person, as a lot of people who are destined to become elite athletes are, um, and then she meets other trans women who are, like, living deeply in poverty and she learns so much about how her community actually has to survive. That's a piece of writing that I'm enjoying reading, um writing the most at the moment, just because, like, it reminds me so much of my own experiences and it's I think it's just also given me, a, like, a lot of closure in general, just to put that out there and know that, like, the class dynamics at play there are going to be really important for other people to know that, like, I do see it. And, like, broader society needs to see it as well. Like, if you go to, like, trans share houses, there are, like, you know, I've been to share- trans sharehouses where there are, like, six people crammed into, like, a two-bedroom flat. Like, mm-hmm. it is, like, you know, something out of, like, Charles Dickens or whatever. <laughs> like, but, you know when people talk about, like, affordable housing, no one thinks about that kind of stuff. No one wants to examine the intersection intersectionality at play
4: there.
7: Mm. Um, in terms of other pieces of writing that I've enjoyed um, and that have really meant a lot to me, um, I've been getting really into Indigenous history at the moment, and a big shout-out to Claire Coleman as well. She is so inspiring. Um, and, like, I feel like the ferocity through which she wants to inform the world about um, the lies of white supremacy, especially in Australia, and talk about how much Aboriginal society has to offer, I think has been really inspiring to me as well. You know, when we we talked before about, um, you know, how do you stay motivated? Just seeing the um, success and the passion for other people doing the same thing as me again is just... It means so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, just thinking, like, like, I think when it comes to stories that mean a lot to me, just thinking about the life story of not just myself but, like, my friends as well. Like, (laughs) our lives are so weird. Like, at the moment, I'm dealing, like, helping friends through, like, Domestic violence orders and real estate agents abusing their powers. And yet, mm. like, you know, the next morning I'm on here doing this. Yeah. And I also, like, plan on meeting politicians. Like, what is my life? <laughs> like, I did not imagine that I'd be doing this when I was, like, writing to... Cope with dissociating in class. Yeah, like, but I'm not complaining. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you've painted a really vivid and passionate um, picture of the things you kind of hold dear and the things that you that inspire you. And just to finish off our chat, I'm really excited for this. Um, but you've <laughs> said that you're going to share a short excerpt from your most recent novel. So yeah, as our as our final um, segment. I was wondering if you could read that for us.
7: Okay, so um, early on in the novel, um, the main character Ingrid, um, she has a big crush in her best friend Emma, who is a um, you know a school musician, um, and she gets invited to a concert where Emma is performing, um, but it ends really badly because of Ingrid's autism and. You know, the sensory overwhelm that she gets at the concert, as well as the, like, internal sense of inferiority and self-hatred she has. Mm. Yeah, it leads her to a panic attack, so that's what I'm planning on reading now. Thank I hope you, you like it. I applaud with the audience as Emma and the rest of the ensemble bows. Emma smiles in elation and relief. My heart is jumping and spinning. I feel my breath sprinting beyond my reach. I'm going to see if I can find Emma, her mum says. You two can wait at the kiosk. I'll go get you some food. I sweep with the audience into the entrance hall. All my senses stab against my mind. I slither in between all the people to the wall, and I lean against it, sweating, panting. The lights in here are scarring my eyes, and the rumble of the people busting around is shooting spears into my eardrums. Empty chip packets and coffee cups are strewn across the ground in this fucking house of culture. I close my eyes and try to focus on my breathing. I take a deep breath. One, two, three. I open my eyes. I clench my muscles and feel my way through to the corridor, hunching over to shrink myself down and staring at the carpet as I fumble my way to the kiosk. I find Emma there in the arms of her mother, holding her violin case. I can only imagine what she's feeling to be hugged with pride by her mother, or what her mother must be feeling to embrace her beautiful, talented, eternally positive daughter. She returns to her usual beaming, puts her headphones on and literally bounces as her mother hands her a massive cherry ripe. I start shaking and fall into tears. I'm not this, none of this noise, light or love. I can't believe I've been dragged here and tortured like this. I rub the tears from my face and try to scurry away. I feel my arm being pulled back. My mouth catches my heart. Hey, Emma says, her voice leaping with joy. Where you go are you okay? I close my eyes and force my muscles to compose themselves. It's just very loud and it really isn't your kind of scene, huh? No. I'm sorry. It's okay, she says. Did you enjoy my foot? Yeah, you're really good. I uh I wanna say more, but my brain can't cope. You just want to get back to your stars, don't you? I pause for a second. Um I choke out. Maybe. I'm sorry. That's okay. Thank you for coming. I'm sorry. I repeat, opening my eyes and aching for the feel of her hug. I... She shakes her head. It's okay. Seriously. You go out and enjoy your stars. I'll see you at school tomorrow. I nod. She smiles and goes back to her family. I ran outside to the bus stop. I pull my school blazer over myself, collapse into the bench and explode into tears. I'm a failure. To her as a friend and to myself as a person. One nice experience and I'm reminded that I'm just an ugly, unstable, pathetic girl. I can't believe I could have ever got a hint I was anything else. I look up. The light pollution is awful. But I can still make out Venus, fighting through it all to shine at me. I manage to smile.
1: Thank you so much, Natalie. That was um, really a delight. And it's thank been you. amazing having you on this morning. Thanks for bearing with us through our technical issues. Um, and, yeah, hopefully um, you will get your book published promptly. And I look thank forward you. to reading it very much.
0: Have thank a you very so much. Thank you for
1: having me. Thank you. Bye. Yeah,
0: thank you again, Natalie.
7: Thanks so much.
1: We just heard from Natalie Felix, who is a writer, feminist and activist. Natalie has published both fiction and nonfiction work and has a focus on bringing empowerment to queer and disabled people through advocacy and representation. Today, Natalie kindly joined us to talk all things transfiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated, and we were lucky enough to hear an excerpt from her most
0: recent novel. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.
6: Vietnam, Melbourne, Slut Walk is once again taking to the streets in the fight against victim blaming and slut shaming. In the past year, we have seen how deeply still rape culture is ingrained in our highest institutions, from the media to federal government. This cannot be tolerated. To take a stand, join the 2022 Slut Walk at 1 pm on the 19th of November outside the Victorian State Library. Light like Walk is a Tracy R supporter. i Hi, my name
4: is Bungelini
3: also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwarrow, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November Aunty Almathorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munmuru, 6
10: to 8 pm.
3: For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au, backslash, beyond the bars.
0: Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services
5: will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else.
8: Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were were once dinosaurs.
5: Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women.
7: Muckety
8: is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal.
1: You're listening to Women on the Line.
8: Welcome again to Lost in Science.
1: And welcome to another edition
9: of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network.
8: Hello
1: and welcome to Accent of Women.
8: Annika Swall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play.
1: Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast
0: weekly on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And unfortunately, we're having a couple more technical difficulties getting our next interviewee on air, but we will be troubleshooting those now and hopefully we'll be chatting with Tommy very soon. Thanks so much for your patience. Have
4: you heard it on the news about this group thing? Even with racist views spreading all across the land.
6: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Maraban. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a
11: new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Altaroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and
6: fighters about some angry blighters.
0: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And now we are joined
2: by Lily Ryan, who is a software security consultant and board member of Digital Rights Watch. And she joins us today to discuss what Recent cyber attacks on Optus and Medibank mean for legislation, privacy, and the Department of Home Affairs' proposed new strategy to prevent this through biometrics. Thanks for joining us today, Lily. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the recent cyber attacks, because the I think with the Optus breach, as many as 9.7 million customers, and with Medibank, up to 4 million customers might have been affected. I know, I know we've all heard lots about it, but could you just walk us through why this is happening and what the actual concerns are?
12: Yeah, yeah, of course. So this is an interesting... Uh, sorry, I can hear my voice back in my ears a well.
2: Oh, no, yeah, it'll go away in a second, hopefully, okay, but we can, it's all good on our end.
12: Excellent, wonderful. Um, yes, so this is a, certainly an interesting one um, because most companies do have security vulnerabilities a lot of the time, um, They happen every day in lots of different ways. Um, But a few things made these two notable. Uh, One was the ransom demand for Optus. But that drew a lot of attention to the fact that data had been stolen. And um, not all data is stolen and then ransomed, which means that this one uh, definitely drew the spotlight, but a lot of others do fly under the radar. And with that increased attention, um, the other thing that brought that to the table was the fact that Optus is so widely used Um, The widespread nature of the people affected means that people, you know, people were drawn to to care a bit more, I think. There are a lot of breaches that happen fairly regularly, but because, you know, certain services often just cater to specific parts of the population, it's only a small specific part of the population that's affected at any one time. But uh, Optus and Medibank, being quite large providers for lots of different parts of the population, it's certainly drawn a uh, a lot of attention there.
2: Yeah, I know for – there's also like right now there's new legislation that's being introduced that really increases the penalties for companies that don't actually protect sensitive data. And I know Digital Rights Watch have stated that, you know, increased penalties are a welcome first step, but the best way to reduce harm is to actually just not collect and store the data in the first place. Um, what hopes does – do you think that this new legislation has or – can companies actually just I don't know, pay the fines and just fly under the radar?
12: Yeah, the point of the new legislation is to increase the fines to the point that it's actually meaningful to large companies rather than just a cost of doing business, which is how some companies treat fines like this one. And um yeah, we think that fines are, you know, as you say, a welcome first step. But the new legislation I think will be a will be a useful place to to begin. This is something that there's already a review to the Privacy Act that will be coming up. And this, while this does make amendments to the Privacy Act, as it is, um, this will also not be the end of it. We are, uh, as you know, the legislation is changing because we need a review of the Privacy Act overall. It's quite old and doesn't cover a lot of modern, modern cases. Um, but for the moment, what this means is that there are sort of short-term measures to help companies Uh, prioritise perhaps more effectively with a different incentive than maybe they've been used to having in terms of bringing in more security measures. So hopefully this will help. Um, It does mean, though, that we really need to make sure that it is followed up by more legislation that stops data gathering. Part of the reason that companies have this data to be breached is because they're collecting it. And part of the reason that they're collecting it is because the government mandates collection of a lot of this kind of data for various reasons some to do with national security, and some to do with the other, you know, ways of operating business. Um, but it's it's important, I think, that given the amount of data that we're able to gather about people in this day and age, that we are more judicious with what we are asking people to collect, how long we're asking people to hold it for, and how we're asking them to store it.
2: Yeah, I think it's been a really common trend that legislation is just not catching up technologically to the modern world. And I think the lack of legislation keeps being an important sticking point here because the Department of Home Affairs is currently the lead agency for identity security, if I'm not mistaken. And they proposed at the Tech and Gov conference in Canberra last week that biometrics can prevent such a loss of identity from occurring again, which is a pretty bold claim. But... I don't know, what does the lack of legislation actually mean, initially, for what the what kind of power the department actually holds?
12: It does create an interesting gap that they can step into and say, in the absence of any other regulation, we need to be doing something here. There are legitimate national security concerns involved with leaking data at this magnitude. It's true. And so I can see why there would be some interest in making sure that this doesn't happen and that this department would be the one to try and step in and do it. Um, But also, there have been uh, long-held objections to the idea of forming some kind of national identity uh, provider in that sense um, since, since the Australia Card debates in the 1980s. And this is something that we need to continue to think about, even as data breaches occur, as to, like, is this the only solution? Is this the way that we should be doing this? Are there other places that we can consider this? And I think that the upcoming review to the Privacy Act provides us with a really good opportunity to get some laws in, to get some legislation that will really help us out and uh, perhaps decouple some of that from the Department of Home Affairs and put it in places where it may actually be more relevant.
2: Yeah, I feel like distributing that power will hopefully allow (laughs) maybe for a little bit better regulation or, I I guess, better practices I think adding on from the second part of that question, what exactly are biometrics and how can they prevent a loss of identity information?
12: Yeah, great question. Biometrics, um, uh, they, I mean, the word itself is, you know, talking about measuring, measuring life. And any kind of measurement of the body can technically be a biometric, including, you know, your weight, your height, your eye color, that kind of thing. But what we're typically talking about are things that uniquely are commonly used to uniquely identify you in in often digital systems these days and that's fingerprints face you know face prints that kind of thing um, and they are often touted as a solution for protecting your identity because they are something that is not easy to change about you you know the way a username and a password are typically used to prove your identity online that is something that can that can be changed pretty easily uh, it's harder to change a face. There have been movies about this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that is, uh, that is one of the ways that people are thinking might be a, might be a good way to identify folks through, through facial recognition, that kind of thing. And tying that back to some kind of centralized identity as a way of affirming that the person is who they say they are. Because a scammer, for example, cannot, um, cannot easily pretend to be you if you're fronting up in person with your fingerprints in your, your face scan, for example the same way they could with the username and password. It's not quite as easy. But there are a lot of issues tied up in this as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think even noticing the surveillance of protesters and having to have more legal observers and just knowing how difficult it actually can be (laughs) to Mm. keep your... I guess less so keep your information protected and just know how much of a surveillance state... We're becoming, um, and we know that, you know, th- that science is not neutral and that there's definitely risks of biases, especially racial bias, um, which I'm sure rear their ugly head over and over again because there is somebody making the algorithm. There's somebody making those programs. Um, I guess yeah. what recommendations do- does Digital Rights Watch have? Um, I guess, yeah, to combat this and also, to protect privacy
12: one of the one of the big things that we've been calling for for the last while with joint calls that have been made by quite a few people in, in Australian public life um, has been for facial recognition to be banned until we can decide what we need to <laughs> what we need to do about it what legislation we've got in place that's actually going to make it meaningfully useful if at all and how we can implement that because at the moment in that and you know we were speaking earlier about that kind of gap in legislation another thing that's happened is facial recognition being rolled out in lots of places to surveil people a lot of retail environments and that kind of thing and often used as a kind of form of security or protection for the people who are rolling it out rather than the people who are being subject to it um and there are also many cases where people don't need to be identified as themselves and shouldn't and don't need, you know, and don't want to. Yep. You've brought up, for example, protests. And that's been something that's had quite a chilling effect, I think. And the potential for it can, because even if you're capturing static images of a protest that is happening, you could always go back and run facial recognition algorithms across them later to pick things out if you needed to. So it's not even just a point in time thing. It can be used to retroactively identify and, uh, prosecute people, which is something we saw happening in Hong Kong with the protests a few years ago. So there are a lot of issues that are quite significant there and a lot of very good reasons that we need to have a national conversation about how we want to implement this in our everyday lives, especially not, not just because of the fact that, you know, putting all of these things into centralised hands and centralising identity across government makes it... Uh, makes it a lot harder for a lot of people to do what they need to do with the yeah. right level of anonymity for very good reasons, um, but also because it, it's something that we haven't actually sought you know, proper consent and consensus on from the public. And in the meantime, private companies are rolling this out too. So we need to be able to have something that we can point to and say, you know, this, is, this represents what Australia wants.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there is so much more to speak on about this. And I'm sure we can have you back anytime to speak about digital hygiene and consent. Uh, But that's about all we have time for today. But thank you so much for enlightening us. Um, Hugely important topic. And thank you so much for your time as well. Thank you. That was Lily Ryan, who is a software security consultant and a board member of Digital Rights Watch, talking to us about the recent data breaches on Optus and Medibank, what this means for legislation, privacy, and biometrics.
0: You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now very lucky to be joined by cartoonist, illustrator, and art editor Tommy Parrish to discuss their breathtaking sophomore graphic novel, Men I Trust. Tommy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Can you hear us? Let me see. Now I'm having my own technical difficulties. Can you hear us (laughs) Tommy? Oh, perfect. All right. I I, just turned the wrong thing on. Uh, Beautiful. Uh, It's all technical issues this morning. But yeah, just really appreciate you joining us. I was telling my co-hosts this morning that when I read Men I Trust, I intended to put aside a couple of days to go through it slowly, and I ended up just smashing through it in one session. It was so beautiful, and I couldn't, you know, once I was immersed in the world, I couldn't extract myself from it until I closed the last page. Ah,
11: um, oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. No, of
0: course. Um, so could you start off by telling us a little bit about the process of developing this book over the course of the pandemic? Because I really feel like the tenor of isolation that a lot of us experienced over this time is really reflected in the narrative and in the respective struggles of the main characters, Sasha and Eliza.
11: Sure, sure. Um, well, I was working on the book for over three years, but a chunk of it... Um, was, like, being produced. I had just... My visa in Canada had expired, and I had just moved to the States, to the woods. (laughs) And then six months later, the pandemic hit. And so it was a very... It was a very, very, very challenging time, Mm. um, to put it extremely lightly. But it meant that I had this, like, extraordinary amount of space to like produce this book and just like really like really really think about what i wanted to have in it and like i was like surrounded by trees the first time in my life which was really cool as well and i think helps. but i think it was uh yeah i like i said i was in like a more rural area Mm
4: -hmm.
11: and so i was just kind of like really immersed in that environment (laughs) and tried to make the best of it i guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, there's it, it's clear that, you know, there's been so much intention that's gone into this work as well, um, and so much care. Um, I'm also, yeah, wondering if we could hear uh, a bit about the title, Men I Trust, because uh, it did sure. seem to me that, yeah, several of the supporting male characters sort of weaved in and out of this storyline and were these sources of constraint and frustration to Sasha and Eliza. So, yeah, I'm hoping you could tell us a bit yeah. more about the choice of name.
11: Totally. Well, I I suppose it was more just about um, struggling with trust, Mm. um, because I I guess that's kind of like the core theme of the book. Um, I think it was just a really catchy title. And then I found out that it was the name of like an incredibly successful Canadian band. (laughs) (laughs) Totally unrelated. I swear to God. Um, But yeah, it was about um, trying to work out how to go about trusting. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I suppose a lot of people, especially a lot of clear people have often some like trauma around, uh, masculinity, like masculinity. And so, yeah, calling it men I trust just felt like it made sense for the story.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think like the way that, Um, You know, the main characters are kind of navigating, um, you know, a really sort of like unfair and unpredictable set of circumstances, um, but also like trying to Mm -hmm. exercise agency and then um, finding different ways that they're being let down by these various men, um, I think is, yeah, it really like the title really encapsulates that. Um, I think probably the only like mask uh, I'm so glad. Yeah. yeah, well I think like the only mask character that <laughs> gave me sort of uh positive pure vibes was um was Eliza's kid.
11: Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Such a such
0: a little <laughs> yeah. sweetie. Like I was just thinking about the you know, the moment in the book where um where they have an argument, um and then it's sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, he sort of comes to console her. Um and I think, yeah. I don't know. It is just, you know, it's, it's sort of, yeah, there's frustration, but there's also hope there. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I also like really appreciated the detailed backgrounds that you that you painted which really sort of immerse the reader in this uncanny cityscape that they're navigating through the story. Um and I was, you know, this is more of like an artsy kind of question, but I was kind of thinking about this <laughs> juxtaposition of these angular buildings and these vehicles and then these soft uncertain bodies of the characters and I guess mm-hmm. I really wanted mm-hmm. you to speak to your art style.
11: Sure, sure. I mean, I think like organic form Traditionally, for me, has been quite difficult. Um, I started drawing figures the way that I do or painting them the way that, that, that I do because I um, just really struggled with, I guess, like, traditional figure drawing. And then it just, like, originated into a style. But I don't know, with structure, like, with buildings and stuff, I've always found it really, really easy. Um, and I've always been, like, really taken by I don't know the distress on buildings mm. um like I don't know something that just destroys me in a good way is like you have just like this big old ass wall and you can see just like the history of this wall in the sense like all these posters have been put up and wrote down there's all paint um I like have spent like a lot of time in my adult life trying to like work out how to replicate that um in the back and through a comic
0: yeah and i I, it's also just yeah yeah, it's
11: also just like a cool i don't know it's i i I think of the like the disney cartoons uh where like the foreground and the background are like quite distinctly different but Mm -hmm. they like still like work kind of together in harmony
0: yeah I mean, like, I just can't stop thinking about the sort of, like, you know, holes in barbed wire fences and that um, that panel, uh, which I think has, like, a bunch of characters painted on, like, a mural painted on the wall. Um, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. it's – there's, yeah, so much detail and care that sort of has gone into these. I uh, really – yeah, like, encourage people to pick up a copy of the book and, and have a look through because – um the way that that then contrasts against the sort of relationships that are being played out in the book is is really wonderful. Um and I guess um talking about this you like the visual imagery of the book, I also wanted to briefly hear a bit about your use of color in storytelling as well because I really love the color palette mm-hmm. that you use for this book too. Yeah.
11: Thank you. Um well I suppose uh with color which is just, like, I don't know, is really hard and then just becomes, like, such a joy when you kind of uh, have, like, a little more, like, fluency with the use of it. Um, most of most of it just comes from um, if you just, like, walk around in nature uh, or just, like, walk around a city or whatever, the, like, the best color palettes are just, like, already in the world. Um, and it can be this really fun little game you can play with yourself where you train yourself to notice yeah you just train yourself to notice like what stands out for you like I don't know the like uh the orange building against like the blue sky or whatever with like the green grass um yeah sometimes I like I have a little uh have a little notebook where I like write down like color combinations that I see in the world (laughs) which is always fun Yeah.
0: yeah and i think like it, i also really like the way that in your art style like sometimes the the background color comes through the person's face um or you know there's like this sort of um shifting in and out of um yeah out of the background and like into different frames of of you know vision um through the use of color as well which i think sort of weaves into the way that these characters are um kind of moving in this um, strange and uncertain way through the world and you know experiencing all of this instability mm-hmm. um yeah it was just so beautiful um but yes yeah, uh, oh, thank you so much no, no that's all right um <laughs> but yeah where can listeners grab a copy of men i trust as well as um some of your other work noting that we are speaking from narm
11: um well uh let me let me think they should be in um so it's out with uh a bunch of different publishers. The I guess the Commonwealth publisher is Scribe. It's also out with Um You should probably be able to find it at like all of your big booksellers. Um, like I think it's going to get like a pretty wide distribution, which is very cool. Mm. Um, the book before this, uh, called The Lion, How We Told It, is um, about to be reprinted, which is great, um, and it can probably be found in like all the same places like readings if that still exists i haven't been does. I've been lived in australia for kind of a while now no,
0: fair <laughs> um, um readings still Yeah, the bookstores and, yeah. that are around yeah totally yeah. although readings still going through like a massive labor dispute with their workers so um Oh, <laughs> bummer. Bummer. don't go to readings then Yeah, no buy it, off, buy it online off scribe but um, <laughs> look Tommy thank you so much for joining us is there anything else that you wanted to add um, about the book about your creative practice or anything else um, before we wrap up
11: um, I don't know I guess like all I can think of is uh, comics are amazing if you make them keep making them um, check out Glom Press which is a press uh, in Nam Um, and by my work, if you feel like it.
0: Yeah, well, I hope a lot of people (laughs) feel like it um, because it is so beautiful and so special. And um, yeah, if you, I don't know, if you're anything like me, you will sit down planning to read it over a long period of time and just end up devouring it in one go and then wanting everybody that you know to read it as well. So, Tommy, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it um, for you joining us from like halfway across the world. Um, And take care of yourself. Hopefully people will buy a whole bunch of copies.
11: (laughs) Thank you very much. You have a good morning.
0: You too. Bye. And that was Tommy Parrish, who is a cartoonist, illustrator, and art editor who joined us to discuss their breathtaking, oh my gosh, I did it again, breathtaking sophomore graphic novel, Men I Trust. Tommy is based in Montreal, and their previous work, The Lie and How We Told It, was nominated for the Ignatz Awards and won the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for Best LGBTQ Graphic Novel. And Men I Trust is out this month in Australia with Scribe, and it's available online and in all good bookstores. Now we've got time for an extremely brief, ah, so brief rundown. So maybe I'll just uh, kick it off. So first up, we were joined by Jack and Sam from 3CR's Dirt Radio talking to Jupiter McIntyre about her new report, uh, which is on uranium levels in drinking water in remote communities in the NT.
1: And then we were joined by Natalie Felix, a writer, feminist and activist who joined us to talk all things transfiction, coping with rejection, staying motivated and a short excerpt from her lit- latest novel.
2: And then we were joined by Lily Ryan, who's a software security consultant and digital- digital rights watch member and we spoke about data breaches and legislation privacy and biometrics
0: excellent and then we were joined of course by tommy Parrish to talk about their new graphic novel men i trust which again is so beautiful i really encourage everyone to grab a copy and have a read um i think yeah support support queer and trans creators um support all of the beautiful art that they're making go buy natalie's book when it's out we'll let you know all right take care we'll catch you next week